Today's conversation is brought to you by He Gets Us. How did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? That's the question behind He Gets Us, the largest national multimedia campaign to change hearts and minds about Jesus. Reaching over 1 million people daily, He Gets Us now helps connect local churches to the conversation. From discussion guides, Bible reading plans, and even a sermon series, you can now bring He Gets Us and the nationwide conversation to your church. Visit hegetsuspartners.com forward slash NAE to get these free resources. I felt this prick in my spirit that just said, you know, it's a privilege to worship alongside these women. And they have had a costly surrender that you know nothing about <laughs> um, to get to the place where they really, truly understand grace and are pursuing Christ in a way that is so undistracted compared to the rest of the outside world. Uh, and there's something you can learn from that. And so I really believe not only as the church becomes proximate with those inside that we are going to help spark revival in prisons, but actually the church inside, which is undistracted and completely devoted and understands grace in a way many of us don't, they will actually spark revival in the church in America. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, president of the NAE. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and to navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Today, we're joined by Heather Rice Minus, incoming president and CEO of Prison Fellowship. Evangelicals have long been involved in transformative ministry with prisoners and crime survivors. Today, we want to dig in deeper into God's heart and posture toward those in prison and the ramifications for us as followers of Jesus. Listen in. It's so good to be with you again, Heather. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy to be here. So um, Prison Fellowship has this incredibly wonderful origin story. Floor Harris, can you give us a bit of the history uh, and the current ministry of Prison Fellowship? Sure. Yes, it, it is a really fascinating story. Um, for some listening, um, they they may well know the name Chuck Colson, um, who is our our late founder. Um, and for some of the younger generation, they may not know the name Chuck Colson. Uh, but uh, Chuck was special counsel to President Nixon and uh, got um, associated with the the Watergate scandal. And uh, although you know he he believed himself to be innocent of the exact charges that were put against him. Uh, he he did recognize that he was part of the culture that led to Watergate. And in the course of that trial is actually when he made a decision to follow Jesus. Uh, if you if you haven't read um, Born Again to those listening, I highly recommend it. It's a classic. Uh, and you hear his whole story of how God um, really uh, touched him during that time and he surrendered to Christ. And uh, he decided you know, he he was guilty of, of building this culture and so felt that it was fair that he would go to prison. And he ended up going to federal prison in Alabama uh, for, for a little under a year. And during that time, he built an incredible Christian community inside the prison walls. Uh, there were men that he met with that prayed fervently. They saw healing happen. Uh, he experienced the Holy Spirit. 
And when he got out, uh, he felt called to start our ministry. And so in 1976 is when Prison Fellowship was founded. And interestingly enough, Chuck actually thought we would exist for like five years Hmm. and we would be a project that, you know, needed to help train and equip the church on how to minister to those behind bars. Uh, But he quickly found that there was a role for prison fellowship to play in the long run of being that liaison between the local church and corrections. And so here we are nearly, we're almost to our 50th year anniversary, um, nearly 50 years later uh, as the largest Christian nonprofit serving people in prison, their families and advocating for, for justice reform. That's a really compelling story. That's um Chuck's origin story, the origin story of Prison Fellowship. I'm interested in your origin story as well. So you've been at Prison Fellowship for over a decade, and you'll soon be taking on the role as president and CEO. Congratulations. Um, It's really been a a joy to work with you on a number of issues, uh, particularly this uh, passion you have for those affected uh, by crime and incarceration. So a bit of your own origin story, where did this passion come from? How did it develop over time? How did you end up at Prison Fellowship? Yes. uh, Well, you know, for me, it's not where I thought I'd land. And I'm sure a lot of people have that story where God, you know, changed the trajectory of your life. But um, I had between college and law school spent a year abroad Um, in East Africa, teaching English and also spending time in orphanages and really wanted to go to law school to work on adoption and foster care policy, uh, which remains an issue close to my heart. Um, My husband and I just got to adopt our foster daughter after three years with her. Um, And as you can imagine, though, there's a lot of intersection between the child welfare system and foster care and criminal justice. And uh, so I think, you know, the Lord had something behind all of those things. But as I started law school, my first year after coming home from this incredible year abroad, I was living in a Muslim country, got to build relationships with people who thought very differently than me. I just um, wanted to remind myself while I was putting myself through law school. <laughs> and so I uh, I looked for some uh, work that I could do part-time while still finishing my classes and um, found a nonprofit that worked on... Uh, at the time, detainee issues. And that's, I think, how I first started working with the NAE many years Mm -hmm. ago. And uh, they opened a portfolio while I was there on prison conditions and asked me to take it over. And that's when my eyes were really opened Mm -hmm. to the rate at which we incarcerate people in our country, the conditions that we keep people in. And uh, one of the issues I worked on predominantly um, with the NAE as well was the use of solitary confinement, uh, as well as uh, restraining pregnant women who are incarcerated during labor and childbirth. And I, I found that I was really moved as a Christian and a believer that I should know more about what's happening in my own country and I should care and be involved in the public square about it. And it was in the course of working on those issues that I started to interact with prison fellowship and we were in coalition together. And I realized a lot of the lawmakers I was trying to persuade on these issues represented my faith background. And I think it was during that time in my 20s that I realized um, I wasn't evangelical. (laughs) Um, I don't know if I realized what that term meant um, until that point, but I realized, you know, this is this is my community, uh, my faith community. And um, I want to be part of persuading other evangelicals, especially those in 
uh, positions of power to think of justice in a biblical light and think of the outcome of restoration as the goal. And what better place could I be doing that um, more persuasive place than the late Chuck Colson's prison fellowship. And so I was really drawn to apply to a position uh, there after I finished law school and have been there ever since. Wow. Uh, Heather, you have given us a lot in your origin story with Prison Fellowship to unpack over the course of our conversation. So I want to pick up on a a, a thread right off um, in terms of Jesus' own teaching uh, on this issue. You talk about biblical justice. And of course, there's the celebrated passage in Matthew 25, where uh, Jesus tells this parable about, uh, you know, when I was in prison, you came to visit me as something of a marker of faithful following of who he is and his kingdom purposes in this world. Um, so I, I want you to draw out a little bit more uh, about your own heart and God's heart uh, for those who are in prison. Yes. You know, I think that is a passage that a lot of believers are familiar with and one that sometimes people struggle with because they're like, I know how to feed the hungry. I know how to clothe the naked, right? Um, But how do I visit those in prison, especially when prison is far away, um, often from those of us in urban centers and uh, prison fellowship gives an open door for how you can do that. Uh, And I think that there are ways we can do that even without physically visiting those in prison. There are ways we can care for those in prison. I'm really drawn as well to a verse we we look at often at Prison Fellowship, which is Hebrews 13, 3. And it says, remember those in prison as if you were with them in prison and those who are suffering as if you were suffering with them. And um, I find that um, those who are mistreated as if you were suffering with them. I, I find that so compelling because it's, it's the gospel uh, showing us that there is this broad, big calling, both to those who are mistreated. And I, I often think of those who are the victims of crime or perhaps, you know, the victims of trafficking or, or those who are vulnerable in war-torn countries. And we can feel a lot of empathy, I think, automatically for those folks, right? Um, they, by no fault of their own, we are called to suffer alongside them and to remember them in that way. But then the beginning of the verse starts out with, remember those in prison as if you're there with them. And most people in prison, there are definitely those who are innocent, right? But many people in prison are there for their own wrongdoing that's brought them there. And some of the wrongdoing has caused terrible harm to other people, uh, to their community. And yet the gospel asks us to remember them as if we're there with them. And to me, that just shows the vastness of grace and the vastness of what we are called into as believers to kind of sit in that tension of both. And um, not only that, like we, we are to bring this hope, right, to people and to share the hope of the gospel and redemption, that redemption is possible no matter what choice you've made. Um, but also throughout scripture, we see this heart for justice and restorative outcomes all the time. And so I love at Prison Fellowship that we also have a ministry that advocates uh, for justice and proportional sentencing and conditions that respect human dignity and second chances for people post-release. Uh, and all of those things are are throughout scripture, part of our calling as believers. Mm. This um, 
so compelling what you described in terms of remembering, because you've already noted maybe the challenge that if you live in an urban center and there's not a prison nearby, you might think, well, I would like to apply this scripture, but I don't even know how to because there's no proximity. But the, the thought of remembering just somehow developing an empathy, even that crosses a distant that you distance that you can't physically cross, that opens up all sorts of possibilities of engagement. Um, and I'm going to later in our conversation come back to that. But I want to um, tug out a little bit uh, this notion of proportional justice, of having in mind both the victim uh, of a genuine crime, but also uh, the criminal um, him or herself. And how you keep those things together, you think of scripture, biblical justice, phrases like eye for an eye might come to mind, uh, the consequences uh, that God seems to call for and exact um, for breaking laws. But at the same time, you're describing a situation of God's deep compassion for all, even the wrongdoers. I'm so glad that God has mercy on sinners, such as myself. So how do we keep all those tensions together? Yes. And it's a complex question. And I think that certainly crime tears at the fabric of society and we can't ignore that. People have to be held accountable for the wrongdoing. And in fact, that is respecting human dignity when we give someone a just and proportional punishment. Um, However, I think in in our country where we have 4% of the world's uh, population or 4% of the world's population, but over 20% of the world's prisoners that we have far overused incarceration as the go-to answer for all types of crime and have people there for much longer sentences for the same crimes than we did just decades ago. And so I think uh, it's really important that that sentence is truly proportional. And when we look at biblical justice uh, we see this thread of of restoration and the outcome wanting to be restoration for all parties, both the victim of crime, but also the community and also the person who has done that wrong. And so how can we provide those opportunities through that just punishment for someone to really step into a new path? And that's where prison fellowships programs come into play and also where a lot of other uh, unique programs and opportunities in prisons and in community corrections can come into play to really help someone set a new path. And if that victim of crime is willing to meet with that person for them to share that harm uh, and for that person to really uh, come to be held accountable personally to that victim of crime, that can also be a really powerful experience as well. And so I think it's both, it's both just accountability and proportional accountability, but it's also uh, giving that opportunity for restoration for all involved, including that person who uh, is found guilty of the crime. Hmm. So what are some of these programs? You've alluded to this. We've um, talked a bit about the, you know, remembering um, there are a lot of programs that you have seem to encourage spiritual growth motivated by this notion of restoration. Um, Describe some of these programs for us. Sure. So our flagship program in prison is called the Prison Fellowship Academy. And it was actually, it's another unique origin story. Uh, Chuck Colson actually visited a faith-based dorm in Brazil and was inspired by that and was later able to open our first Prison Fellowship Academy at the Carol Vance, uh, Carol Vance Unit 
in Houston, Texas, and that still exists today. It's been there for over 25 years. Uh, and thanks to then Governor Bush, uh, we got some access there and were able to start that program. But we use 500 hours of curriculum uh, that the men or women in the unit will go through. And we focus on the biblical values of what we call good citizenship, things like integrity and productivity and restoration, and uh, really give people an opportunity to evaluate what brought them to prison and how they can apply these biblical values in their life. And the intensive academy sites that we have actually require people just like Chuck saw in Brazil to live together in community to practice those things. And we have an on-site academy manager who comes in and coaches those men or women every day. Um, another program I'd like to mention that really allows for that proximity for churches nationwide, even if you don't have a prison next door that has an academy, is Prison Fellowship's Angel Tree Program. Mm. And that serves children of the incarcerated. And the way it starts is that an incarcerated mom or dad will actually sign up their child to receive a gift on their behalf. And then we match where that child lives with a local church who will then uh reach out to the parent or caregiver or guardian of that child and ask, you know, what gift would be appropriate for them and what they want. And we actually have our church volunteers affix a note to that gift from the application of the incarcerated parent so that when they deliver it, it's not, this is from, you know, national community church for you. This is um, from your dad. Uh, and you can see the note on there that this is really from your dad on his, his behalf that we're delivering this to. And so we serve over 250,000 children of incarcerated parents every year, thanks to 5,000 churches that have stepped up and said that they will participate in Prison Fellowship Angel Tree. So that's a great way to get proximate to families. And our heart at Prison Fellowship is really that that wouldn't be a Christmas service project, but a, a door opener to an ongoing relationship to come alongside that family and their needs. Mm. That, I'm sure there are so many beautiful stories that have unfolded over the, the years. I don't know if one particularly comes to, to mind, but uh, I know that our churches that I've been involved with in the past have been involved in this angel tree program. And it's just such a compelling experience. It is. And, you know, one that does come to mind for me is uh, there's a, a man, Quovatis, uh, and he actually it's kind of a, a story that combines Academy and Angel Tree. His his dad was also incarcerated when he became incarcerated. And you'll see that a lot. Generational um, children of the incarcerated are six times more likely to end up in the justice system than peers without an incarcerated parent. Um, and so that was the case for Q, as we call him. And uh, he his dad encouraged him to sign up for the Prison Fellowship Academy in Iowa. <laughs> and so he joined the Prison Fellowship Academy. And while he was there, he actually signed up his daughter for angel tree Christmas. Mm -hmm. And um, the local church in Iowa that ended up serving his daughter and his then girlfriend um, at the time invited them to church and they joined that local church. And this church just loved on them. They became members. Uh, and meanwhile, volunteers from that church were volunteering at the academy that Q went to. And so, of course, when he got out and he had come to know Jesus in that time and recommitted his life, um, he actually joined that church when he got out. He married his girlfriend, who's now his wife. They have another son. Um, and then later on, uh, Q actually became Pastor Q. He is one of, uh, he's a pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in Iowa today. 
Um, and just this amazing story of this church coming alongside them, serving this family super holistically, both in prison and the family on the outside, and then seeing this story of Q actually coming back and becoming a leader in his community and at that church and now his own church. That, that's so powerful. It's so beautiful. I mean, you, you've talked about programs, you've described what you do, but to hear hear it in this story is incredibly compelling. Um, something that you mentioned earlier um, in your career, policy issues. Yeah. Um, I want to touch on that because you not only have these amazing programs that lead to individual stories of transformation, um, beautiful, so important. Um, but I get deeply the sense that at Prison Fellowship, you're also after issues of um, systemic change or structures or the ways in which criminal justice is pursued in the United States, because it's not God's ultimate perfect justice. We are imperfect people, imperfect systems. So describe a bit of what you're doing in the public policy realm and maybe some of the principles that um, guide you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so important, I believe, to not only bring the hope of the gospel uh, to individuals, but also to bring those gospel values to the public square and to ensure that we don't have a message to those inside when we visit them that we, you know, want to lock you up, save your soul, but then throw away the key. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. We, we want to be a people who care that you are getting a proportional sentence, right? Um, and we want to fight for that when it's unjust, uh, unjust. And we don't want to be pe people who say all things are possible through Christ. And then when you get out and you can't find a job and you can't find housing, uh, that we're complacent about the barriers that do exist for so many people who have a criminal record, even though supposedly their debt is paid. And so because of that, uh, a few years after Chuck launched Prison Fellowship in the 70s, he started uh, our advocacy arm uh, that works on policy. And this is a place where it's been such a gift to partner with the NAE over the years uh, together to work on justice reforms. But we are passionate about ensuring that there is just sentencing, uh, conditions of confinement reflect human dignity, and that there are program opportunities, including the Prison Fellowship Academy, available to people inside and that there are true second chances so that people can reintegrate and be able to provide for their families and be able to have that fresh start. And so we work on the federal level as well as in six target states at the state level. And we actually have a program called Justice Ambassadors where we train everyday Christians on how they can be a voice both in their church and community, as well as meeting with their lawmakers. How do you have an effective meeting with a lawmaker and share from your perspective as a Christian, why you want to see justice reforms advanced? And so that's one of our volunteer opportunities. We've got several hundred people who do that across the country. And some of our most effective justice ambassadors are those who have a family member or who were themselves once involved in the justice system and are able to share from that personal capacity as well. In a time when trust in institutions have so rapidly declined, and we think of the gridlock that often confronts us uh, in the realm of politics, I mean, is this work even possible that you're doing? <laughs> and I, it must be painfully slow. What keeps you going in it? And is it really worthwhile? 
Yeah. You know, it, it can be painfully slow, particularly at the federal level, but it over the years, there have been these moments when we've been able to really garner bipartisan support. And I used to joke that I get to work on one of the last bipartisan issues left in Congress. Uh, and, you know, at times I've been at tables with everyone from the ACLU to Heritage working on the same criminal justice reforms. And uh, it's thanks to those bipartisan co co coalitions over the years that we've been able to pass laws like the Second Chance Act uh, in 2007 and um, the First Step Act uh, just you know a few years ago. Uh, we were also able, uh, together with the NAE and so many others, to uh, finally restore Pell Grant access um, for incarcerated students who want to pursue higher education, which greatly reduces recidivism, which means, you know, great benefits for all of us. And now today when I'm visiting prison, I get to hear of people enrolled uh, in classes thanks to a Pell Grant. Uh, and so this work is possible. Uh, and it is sometimes a place where people from both parties can find common ground and share values on why they want to move something forward. Uh, but, you know, it does ebb and flow. And there are moments, especially uh, when crime rates are high, where we have different views on on how to reform that, but we are big believers at Prison Fellowship that we we want public safety, and we believe that many of the reforms uh, that are put forward are ones that can actually help us reach those goals. Hmm. Uh, what are some of the challenges that um, Prison Fellowship faces, and what are some of the challenges that Prison Fellowship would like? Uh, the church or society at large to deal with? Yeah, I think um, one of the most important challenges we face for the listeners today to know about is uh, we want to see more churches talking about this. Every two years, Prison Fellowship commissions Barna Group to help us with some polling on uh, Christians' perceptions of justice incarceration. And we always ask, is your church active in talking about the following issues? And we've got a, a bunch of issues, things like sanctity of life and domestic violence and human trafficking and homelessness, as well as criminal justice that we always ask about. And lowest on the totem pole is always criminal justice. Hmm. Um, and knowing that one in three Americans are estimated to have a criminal record today, this is you know April, we're talking about um, April is when we celebrate Second Chance Month, and we actually had a Second Chance Sunday toolkit for churches to use uh, to, to talk about this issue and particularly to highlight how people face barriers to employment, housing, and just general stigma of having a criminal record. And so Second Chance Sunday can be a great opportunity for churches to demonstrate that they are a church of welcome and to educate their congregation about that and how they can invite people into their small groups and community to really restore families who are affected by incarceration and also returning citizens who are coming home. And so that's a challenge uh, is to have more churches talking about this and then also, um, you know, taking action to mm. really show that they care, uh, particularly for those coming home. Mm. I'm struck by how many times um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was in prison and how much of his ministry was conducted in prison. And I'm also struck by the fact that, you know, in Second Timothy, as he comes toward the ends of his the end of his life, he talks about how everyone abandoned him uh, and only a, a precious few actually visited him in, in prison. So you get this sense, even from, you know, the great Apostle Paul filled with the Spirit writing scripture 
his own loneliness in, in prison. And, and yet we also find in other places this incredible ministry that he has in prison. So it seems like we, we are talking about a really important mission field, frankly. Um, and it's right here in, in our own country. Um, so grateful that you all are doing that. And it certainly needs to be discussed more in churches, engaged more. So those are some of the challenges. Um, what gives you hope as you look to the future of prison fellowship, of Christian engagement more broadly? What gives you hope? You know, it's it's sort of a flip coin on the challenge. Um, what gives me hope is actually seeing so many churches starting to rise up and lean into this issue. Um, I did a fact-finding trip in preparation for my interview with the board and to present my vision um, to them down to Alabama. We were invited by one of our church partners, Church Highlands, Church of the Highlands, to come down and visit with them because they actually uh, have not only the second largest church in America, but they have 21 church campuses in prison, (laughs) in different prisons. Um, and so when Pastor Chris Hodges gets up and welcomes everyone on Sunday, he says, you know, hello to all of our campuses all over Alabama, including our Department of Corrections campuses. <laughs> and uh, it really means so much to these men and women. I was able to visit some of their campuses and, and watch them in action. And um, I was also able to worship at Julia Tutwiler Prison, which is a women's prison, and actually uh, there's a gen- you know a, a Genesis story of Prison Fellowship Angel Tree from a woman who was incarcerated there. Mary Kay Beard, who started Angel Tree at Prison Fellowship. Um, so it's a really special place to be to be worshiping with these ladies. And I just felt this prick in my spirit as I was worshiping with these women. And we were listening to Church of the Highlands, who's in partnership with them. And they're doing their worship music. Um, Pastor Q was actually there, the one I told you about. And he did a message for these ladies. He's actually now mentored by Pastor Chris. Um, so all sorts of fun connections. But um you know, it was a really moving night. And I felt this prick in my spirit that just said, you know, it's a privilege to worship alongside these women. And they have had a costly surrender that you know nothing about (laughs) um, to get to the place where they really, truly understand grace and are pursuing Christ in a way that is so undistracted compared to the rest of the outside world. Uh, And there's something you can learn from that. And so, I really believe not only as the church becomes proximate with those inside that we are going to help spark revival in prisons, but actually the church inside, which is undistracted and completely devoted and understands grace in a way many of us don't, they will actually spark revival in the church in America. And so that's what gives me hope is thinking about the church outside becoming proximate with the church inside. So compelling. Wow. Our guest on today's conversation has been Heather Rice Minus. I'm Walter Kim. And on behalf of us all, thank you, Heather. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.